Welcome to Fundamentally Human, a podcast about mental health topics unpacked in an easy to understand way. My name is Shervin and I'm your host. Let's get started. To kick off our season two, which will be focusing more on mental health disorders, Cam and I will be talking about what therapy is. Cam is a person-centered therapist who focuses on mindfulness, acceptance, and the fundamentals of behavioral change as he helps clients move towards what matters most to them. Thanks for being here today, Cam. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. Cam, can you share a bit about your background with your listeners? Yeah. So most of my life, my background is really focused on uh, sports. So striving for performance, whether that's basketball, powerlifting, um, ultra marathons, what have you, that's really been a central focus for me. Maybe 15 years or so ago, I started to um, sort of get really, really interested in the psychological part, the psychological component of sports, particularly as I was dealing with some injuries myself, really looking at how, how we can respond and be resilient in the face of injuries and how we can um, sort of strive to, to achieve our, our top performance. And so as I became more and more interested in psychology in general, what I found was that I love performance and that that really invigorates me, but there's also a lot more to the puzzle. It's not just, you know, motivation to do one's best. There's, there's a whole periphery, there's a whole mosaic of other things that people have going on. And what I realized was that as much as I was really interested in the performance element, it was, it was so important for me to really see the whole person and see all of the other things that were going on for somebody. And so that then led to a career in therapy, working with uh, initially addictions and, and trauma and coming back full circle to now focusing a lot on, uh, on performance as well. Thanks for sharing that. And with mental health, I like how you talked about performance in terms of sports, where you think about the physical aspect, how strong you are, how fast you are, but there's also the mental aspect that comes along with it, the grit, the resilience, and how you're talking to yourself, how you're coping with the challenges that come with any type of performance. How did you learn about mental health or therapy in your life? How did it get brought up to you and your, in your background and culture? Mm-hmm. Sports was the vehicle for me. Um, specifically in my case, I guess it was um, not performing as well as I wanted to um, through whatever reason. Sometimes I mentioned, sometimes it was injury. Other times it was psyching myself out. But what I realized is that, you know, through differences in mindset and different psychological training, that would really have a really big impact on my ability to show up and perform at my best. And so specific to that context, that's where that the root came from. And then it, then it grew from there. A big question that a lot of people always ask is, you know, there's so many things, there's a therapist, there's a counselor, psychotherapist, or life coaches, psychiatrists, psychologists, so many different terms. And before I started my master's program in becoming a therapist. I didn't really know what all these different things were. Can you share a bit about what each of those types of roles are and what kind of maybe background people need to get to there? Yeah, well, I can certainly try. These are challenging labels. Um, And in some cases, the distinction is pretty clear, but in other cases, it kind of can sometimes come down to semantics. And so you, you mentioned several different titles there. Maybe the best way to go through them is 
to speak a little bit about the training that somebody goes through in order to to attain that position and then hopefully in that process listeners can sort of gather a little bit of, of information about you know where that might make sense for them or somebody else a psychiatrist is a medical doctor they've completed med school and after their completion of med school they've went on to specialize in, in psychiatry in the process of specializing in psychiatry, there's a, a, a heavy focus on disorders, on diagnoses, uh, on, on pharmacotherapy, so all sorts of uh, you know, medications for different disorders. In addition to that, they, they certainly receive training in, in talk therapy as well. And so each individual will practice uh, psychiatry a little bit differently, but, but there's a heavy medical emphasis there. The, the other label that people are often very familiar with is psychologist. And there are actually several types of psychologists. So there can be a, a health psychologist or an organizational psychologist. Um, but if you're talking about sort of talk therapy, the sort of traditional sit on a couch and tell somebody what's going on for you, then, then what you're thinking about is a clinical psychologist. And so clinical psychologists will have earned a, a PhD in clinical psychology. And through that process, they're going to have a lot of practical hands-on training in terms of uh, specifically talk therapy. In addition to that, they're also going to have a, a, ton, of a ton of knowledge on uh, research. In, in most cases, they'll have been involved in several research papers, often on an ongoing basis as well, and, and a lot of diagnosis as well. So they'll, they'll have a lot of expertise in specific disorders and diagnoses. They're not able to prescribe medication unlike the psychiatrist, but they, they have a similar knowledge in terms of specific diagnoses, whether it's something like a generalized anxiety disorder or something less common like a dis dissociative identity disorder. Then we're talking about somebody who's earned in most cases a master's degree in counseling or counseling psychology. Sometimes there are a couple different routes as well. And that training is going to be, in most cases, very specific and, and hands-on to, to the talk therapy process. So to working one-on-one -on -one or sometimes with couples in, in a counseling scenario. And this is where I fall, I'm a, I'm a clinical counselor. And so what we're not able to do, unlike a psychologist, is we're not able, to, in most cases, to provide specific diagnoses. Uh, certainly not able to, to, to provide any sort of medical advice. And the depth of our research knowledge tends to be a lot less than a psychologist. Our knowledge uh, tends to be, at least through our training, a lot more specific to working one-on-one -on -one with an individual. You mentioned some other terms as well. So you mentioned, I think, therapist and coach. Those are challenging terms because therapist can mean a lot of things. So it can mean a physical therapist, it can mean a psychotherapist, Often it's used interchangeably with many other terms, whether a clinical counselor or a psychologist, even psychiatrist can be called a therapist. So as a rule, if somebody hears the term therapist, I would suggest just sort of digging a little bit more to see what that actually means. And then coach, coach can be a very contentious word in the mental health world. There's no formal education required for somebody to refer to themselves as a coach or a life coach. Now, I don't want to disparage coaches because I've known many who are absolutely excellent, but in and of itself, somebody referring to themselves as a coach doesn't necessarily mean too much. The other way we can look at the label, though, is actually more of a, of a verb in terms of the act of coaching. 
And when we think about the act of coaching, well, that's something that actually a lot of counselors will do. And a lot of psychologists and, and to a lesser extent, probably psychiatrists will do as well. And in that case, what we're really looking at is a sort of solution focused uh, approach to sort of helping people work toward achieving different things, which lots of those different professions will do. I'm curious, actually, mostly from you, Shervin, if that closely aligns with how you see these, these differences or what your perspective is. Thanks for explaining all of that. And to be perfectly honest, I really didn't understand the differences before I started school. So it's helpful to know what the differences are and why you might look for someone. If, for example, if you need medication um, for your mental health, it might be best to see the psychiatrist. But for the most part, most people tend to see counselors or clinical counselors or psychotherapists, which is what you and what I will be doing in the future <laughs> and what you're doing now. Yeah. And the one with the coach, that's a bit more new, I would say, in the last few years that's come up. And at the end of the day, I think what's most important is to figure out what kind of support you're looking for and also to just make sure you check the credentials of a person. Because I have seen a lot of different advertisements for programs for counseling therapists, but they actually come out with a diploma and they don't get recognized by regulatory bodies. So in Canada, we have different bodies in each province where you need to apply to become a clinical counselor. And similarly in the States, each state has a different licensing, for example, a marriage counselor or a regular counselor, things like that. So it's important to make sure you check all those things before you start treatment with someone because it could even impact your insurance too. You might not be able mm -hmm. to get coverage depending on who you're seeing and what credentials they might have. Yeah, that's a great point. Ask questions. If you're if, if anybody out there listening is, is considering talking to somebody, ask them these questions. I would suggest if there's somebody who's, who's worth working with, they're going to be more than happy to hear those questions and help walk you through the answers and how they apply to them. If there's any sort of pushback, I think that sort of says something as well. Exactly. And now that we got that part out of the way, we <laughs> kind of defined what each of the roles are. A big question that people tend to ask and that I've personally heard is, when should I go to therapy? When's a good time? How would you answer that? It's a great question. And it's a question that I hear a lot. And, and it's a question that I never have a clear answer for. It's, it's always up to the client to determine if, you know, if therapy is right for them. But when I'm speaking to somebody who might become a client and, and they'll ask me, well, do you think I need to talk to somebody? Like, first of all, tell them that I don't allow shoulds when I'm with somebody. Don't, don't use that word. But outside of that, I'll reflect the question back to them and I'll ask them if there are things that are important to them to change. Um, whether that's mood, relationships, thought patterns, um, if there are things that they think are really getting in the way of their life, and, and if they're not sure how to try to make those changes, then I think it makes a lot of sense to consult with somebody else in much the same way that, you know, if you're driving a car and, and you know, you want to make some changes to it, if you, if you know how to make those changes, great, go ahead and make them. But if, uh, if you have a mechanical problem or you want to enhance the performance, whatever the case may be, if you don't know how to do that, then it makes sense to consult with somebody else and figure out what the best route forward is for you. 
I like that analogy. Analogies are my favorite. And the one that I love to use the most, it actually ties back with your performance one where I really believe mental health is a muscle and you need to train it and to develop it in order for it to get stronger. And sometimes people, you know, with muscles, they'll go to a personal trainer for someone to guide them. So if you have so much support and you look at all these different things to improve your physical health, why can't you do the same for mental health and for you to have someone to guide you if you need it? Not saying that everyone should jump into therapy right away, but it's also something to consider because it's not always the case where you should only go if you're severely depressed or if you're suicidal or at rock bottom. That's what I hear the most. People have that misconception that you're supposed to go to therapy when everything has gone to the poopers, but it's really not the case. And something we tell our addictions clients is preventative care or proactive care is often the best form of treatment or best way to go about it rather than waiting for things to get really bad to make changes. Yeah, I, I love the, the, the physical health analogy. Uh, I think it's, it's, it's absolutely on point. There's no sort of threshold of if somebody has a certain BMI or blood pressure that that's the appropriate time to see a personal trainer. And similarly, you know, I can't say, well, just because you score a certain score on a depression inventory, for example, that that's the, the threshold for when you need to or when you ought to be seeing any form of therapist, but rather, as you're kind of alluding to it, it is absolutely a muscle and it's something that we can train and improve if and when it's important to us. And everybody needs to decide for themselves when it's important to them, but it's a um, pretty big component of our lives. Uh, the, our thoughts and feelings kind of make up most of our lives. So I'm biased, but I would encourage people to <laughs> take, take care of that. And when someone's starting therapy, are you able to give some insight to how the process looks like? For example, let's say they've reached out to you and they say, hey, Cam, I'm interested in therapy. What's next? What's next is going to be different for everybody. There are different types, many, many different types of therapy. I think that's a great question, what's next? Because everybody's going to approach it very differently. For some people, um, you might come to me uh, and say, what's next? And I say, well, we have an eight session uh, approach. And during session one, we focus on you know, some stabilizing skills. Session two, we focus on mindfulness skills and so on and so forth. And then there's sort of the opposite end of the spectrum where there's sort of an expectation that somebody's probably going to be seeing a therapist once or twice a week for several years. Most therapists, I would say, certainly myself, fall somewhere in between. I'm a person-centered therapist myself. And what that means is that I recognize that the client is always going to be the expert of their lives. So I'm going to have suggestions. I'm going to have homework that, I, that I'm going to suggest somebody tries. But ultimately, the pace that they move and the, the goals that they have are going to be up to them. And that's going to determine what their therapy looks like. It might be sort of two to four sessions of going over some very specific things because maybe somebody's dealing with a, a particular issue. Or it might be something where somebody is looking for ongoing support because um, particularly my more performance-oriented clients, they're looking to sort of to go back to the physical analogy, stay in the best shape they can all the time. And so they're having weekly check-ins for, for years in some cases. So 
that's uh, my way of sort of avoiding your question, even though it's a great question, just because the process is going to be so different. What I will say, though, again, is the importance of talking to a prospective therapist about what their process would look like, because it's going to be different for everybody and, and everybody's going to be looking for something else. Maybe somebody really wants to address a particular issue in a few sessions and maybe somebody else really wants to go on more of a long-term exploratory process and there's no right or wrong way but it's really important that there's alignment there otherwise it's not going to be a satisfying process for the client it's true how it's so unique for everyone just like how everyone has a different situation with their mental health with their lives the type of support that they need is going to have to be tailored and individualized for them so I appreciate you answering that question, even though there's so many different answers depending on where you are with your life at that moment. Yeah. And you talked about person-centered therapy, and that's just one type of intervention. Are there other types of interventions or practices that you can share with the listeners? Because for me, I grew up thinking, you know, therapy, you just sit across from someone who has a box of tissues, they're looking at a clock, you just cry out your eyes about your feelings once a week, and that's it. But <laughs> in TV shows and movies, they don't really tell us what really happens in therapy or what really the goal is. So goal is a great word because it's important to have in mind sort of at least the direction that we're trying to go to. And um, having said that, there's no specific answer. There are millions of different answers. Probably the most, actually, I can confidently say the most commonly practiced form of therapy is, is going to be some version of CBT or cognitive behavioral therapy. Cognitive behavioral therapy um, really breaks it down to look at the thoughts people have, and the behaviors that they're engaging with, and the, the feelings that are coming up as a product of those. And we can kind of conceptualize it like a triangle with these three different points. The really nice thing with CBT is that with that triangle, we can address any of those three points in particular. So we can, we can delve into specific thought patterns people are having. Maybe they're consistently interpreting something as negative or engaging in a lot of negative self-talk, and we can, we can address that specifically. We can also look at the particular types of behavior somebody's engaging in. Maybe they are you know, consistently avoiding certain things. And as a result of that, they're actually um, unintentionally making their anxiety or their depression a lot more severe. And then we can also look at the, 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 the feelings and the moods that are coming up. Often those are gonna be a, a byproduct of the other two factors, but in some cases we can, we can sort of look at those more specifically. And so the most common form of therapy nowadays, CBT, that's really what's going on is Therapists are going to work with clients to look at those three different pieces and depending on the person, depending on the situation, see where it makes the most sense to intervene. Thanks for explaining that. And it just goes to show how it's important to make sure that the person you're seeing has some type of training or background because in school, we go through a lot of learning about these different types of interventions, and then we get to practice them and have someone supervise us to make sure we are approaching situations and treatment with clients in a really appropriate and effective way. And with therapy, I know that there aren't very many male therapists out there. Do you think that your gender has impacted your role as a therapist? I'm sure it has. 
I wouldn't be able to say because I'm a male, I X, Y, and Z. You know, I, I can't draw that that clear comparison, but I'm sure that it has. And I think that it has in a couple of ways. Because I'm a male therapist, which there are fewer of us, certainly than there are females, that's going to intrinsically draw a certain type of clientele, whether they're more comfortable with a male, whether they, you know, are sort of hoping that it's not going to become quite so emotional. You know, there, there are various stereotypes out there and elements of truth to most of them. We don't try to approach things sort of with the lens of as a male, but at the same time, I recognize that there are very much going to be sort of more stereotypically masculine and more stereotypically feminine traits. And we each have varying degrees of that. Um, and certainly in some contexts, I have a lot of um, pretty masculine traits and in other contexts, some feminine traits. But I think for each of us, um, certainly for therapists, but, but for clients as well, working on sort of trying to raise one's own awareness of where one approaches things one way and, and sort of where one may uh, have uh, developed a certain perspective and, and how our perspectives are informed by gender, of course, but gender, culture, even things like age, height, uh, all of these things will, will have some degree of an impact on how we see things. And that's not a bad thing, but it's important to recognize that that's going to be the case because otherwise we're going to be looking at things through a bit of a distorted image without recognizing that we are. You bring up a good point with just how important it is to keep in mind that with therapy, having a different perspective and gaining new insights is really a big part of what therapy is. And it could look different depending on who you might be seeing, what their experiences are, what their training is. But I think in the clinic that I'm at, I've seen hundreds of people over the last few years. And actually I do ask them if they have a preference between a male therapist or a female therapist before they start the program. And most of them don't, which surprised me because I also felt that, um, you know, the stereotype where most people probably only want to see females because they're more empathetic or they are more emotional. Um, but that's really not the case. It's really about you're looking for someone to just give you that different perspective and trust that regardless of what their background might be in terms of their gender, for example, that they're there to support you and to help you. And another question I have for you, we're just going, uh, hammering out all these popular questions <laughs> that people have is, we hear about medication like taking antidepressants or for your anxiety, benzos, tranquilizers, which can be used to help with calming or sedating a person. That's mm -hmm. a form of treatment, the medicine side of things. How does that relate to therapy? And should someone go maybe see a psychiatrist first and take medication? Or should they see a therapist first? What should people do when they think that, you know, I'm really struggling with depression? Where do they go? Well, first of all, I'll go back to my earlier statement about I don't use the word should. <laughs> so I'm not going to tell anybody what they should do. And I don't encourage anybody to tell themselves what they should do. There's a lot of a lot of baggage with the word should. There can be a lot of pressure and some shame if we're not doing the thing that we quote unquote should be doing. If we sort of take that word out of the equation and we sort of think about what's going to be best for somebody, what's going to help somebody the most. Again, we see things through our own lenses. Now, 
I have my own biases, you have your own biases, and, and so does everybody else. But I'm going to try my best to sort of take my bias out for a moment. And if we look at sort of best practices, at least um, when anything would be classified as a mild or moderate disorder, typically best practices for treatment will involve some form of talk therapy, sometimes with the inclusion of, of medication, sometimes not. Now, if somebody falls into what would be considered the severe end, in those cases, best practices usually will call for, uh, at minimum, uh, the use of antidepressants, um, generally alongside talk therapy as well, but certainly with the inclusion of, of antidepressants. Whereas when, when concerns are classified as mild or moderate, uh, most frequently there's going to be certainly talk therapy and the, the medication will be sort of optional, certainly not the first thing that somebody would be looking toward. Thanks for explaining that. It can get really confusing because I've had people ask me, oh, should I go see my family doctor first or should I go to mm -hmm. therapy? And I often respond in the same way that you respond to where what is best for this person? have they received a diagnosis and not to get one just to label yourself with something, but rather think of it as a way where you're able to identify what type of treatment and care you need to help you improve your quality of life. So that's another way to reframe the situation rather than thinking, you know, I'm someone who's depressed or very anxious. It's, I know what I need to help me feel better. Mm -hmm. I encourage people to try to think of things in that way because it can feel so overwhelming and a huge burden on your shoulders even just to give yourself those labels. And yeah. I know it's a lot easier said than done, but I guess here I am very biased about therapy and the <laughs> benefits of it. But that's another real benefit of therapy where you're getting someone who's in your back and not in your back, but rather they're in your <laughs> corner and they're there to support you and to give you new perspectives and new ways to think about something. When it comes to real life examples, what I can share is in most cases, what will happen is I'll have a conversation with a potential client and they'll maybe ask me that. And first of all, I'll ask them what, what they want to do. Uh, some people really are keen on, on working with a psychiatrist and, and getting some medication. And if, if that's what they're keen on, I think you know, great. I'm happy to support them in doing that. In many cases, that's that's not the first thing somebody wants to do. And, and so what we'll generally do, let's say somebody who's who's really um, having their life be impacted by anxiety is we'll, we'll have a few sessions and we'll set up some strategies and, and try to work on some things and see if we're seeing some improvement. And if we are, fantastic. If despite implementing some strategies and despite doing the work and, and having these conversations, if they're not seeing progress, then I'll often suggest, you know, maybe, maybe at this point, it's time to consider an additional, an, an adjunct therapy, be that medication, um, in some cases, and in other cases, it's something entirely different. Maybe it's taking an eight week medic meditation course, but sort of beginning with sort of, let's see what happens when we approach this problem together. And then as the course of treatment moves forward, keeping that dialogue open about whether it makes sense. Okay, you know, let's, let's, let's seek out additional support through one, one means or another. I like that you mentioned with 
your role as a therapist, you might refer your clients to a different type of clinician or even working in a collaborative manner. Their doctor might be involved, a psychologist might be involved, and then they regularly see you as a therapist. There's so Mm -hmm. many different things and different forms of treatment and care that people can go about. And a lot of this can maybe be informed with someone during their first session where they learn a bit about the therapist and they learn about any limits to confidentiality, look at the consent form, what the benefits are, what might come out of therapy. There are a lot of those nitty gritty things that are usually covered in the first session from what I'm aware of. And that's a really great way for people to see if this therapist or this type of treatment is a fit for them. And just because after the first session, you might not feel that it's a fit for you, you have to commit to the person. And I know that even some therapists will also do free phone consultations too. So you can have a conversation and get to know each other a little bit before you engage in a therapeutic relationship. Mm -hmm. In my experience, not certainly on everybody, but most therapists will. Are there any myths that you might want to debunk or things you wish people knew about therapy? You highlighted the big myth, I think, which is that therapy is always going to be a process of lying on the couch, talking about your childhood, probably a lot of tears for a lot of years. Now, sometimes that is what therapy is, but not not always and not usually. There's a, a myth that therapy either works or it doesn't. The answer, and again, big theme alert here is that it's it's going to be about fit. And so you know, like I spoke about earlier, some therapists work from a, as few as two or three session models and some are two or three decades. Some are really looking to help somebody solve problems. Some really want to help people sort of delve deeper and get to the root of their problems. Um, some are going to be focused on building skills. Others focused on building awareness. It's absolutely different for everybody. And and all of these, (laughs) interestingly, all of these practices have a lot of evidence basis behind them. So it's not that there's one that's right or one that's wrong. It's that it's about what's going to fit for you, both in terms of what you're dealing with in your situation, but also just in terms of your own personality, uh, in terms of what makes sense for you, what you feel comfortable with. And I just want to go back to our performance and mental health as a muscle analogy based off of what you just said, because, you know, when you think about exercise, you could go to a spin class, you could lift some weights, you could do some running, some yoga. There's so many different forms of exercise that work for you. And some people might go to CrossFit that works for them, or some people might go to a spin class or do a program and the experts there can help them. There are so many different experts in this field, just like in mental health. It really depends on what you're looking for, what your goals are and what kind of treatment you might need. And you might not find the best one that works for you right away or for some time, but those are all steps towards becoming more fit with your mental health or having a healthier mind. And when people go to therapy and look for therapists, do you think they should be finding someone who they identify with more? For example, for me, I Truthfully, I always thought, oh, maybe I should find someone who's Asian because they will understand my culture and my background. But I feel like that also kind of narrows down my 
treatment availability or gives me a bias towards other ethnic backgrounds. What are your thoughts about people who are looking for therapists and who they should look for? Or do you think it's more of they should look for the type of intervention instead? What are the search keys that people should have? (laughs) I think that what's most important is certainly finding somebody who you feel comfortable with. And, you know, I am a, a cisgendered white male. And because of that, some people don't feel comfortable exploring some of their their traumas or exploring some of their their concerns with me and that's perfectly valid you know everybody has their own wisdom and their own right to choose who they're most comfortable with i've worked with individuals uh, across countless cultures across you know all sorts of various spectrums uh, members of the lgbtq2 community so it's not necessary for everybody to sort of look for somebody who they can identify, who can kind of check several boxes and say, okay, yes, well, I am, I'm this and that, and that's really, that needs to happen. But at the same time, it's absolutely everybody's right to. So again, the default answer is checking in with yourself and, and really thinking about what's most important to you. But then as well, I encourage people to, to have conversations and to, as you're mentioning, you know, most counselors will offer a free consultation and I, I strongly encourage people to have a few different consultations and I would say certainly have consultations with people who you immediately think there's going to be a connection um, but maybe as a client even consider challenging yourself and see well maybe I would be interested in in working with somebody who, who actually has a very different background um, and then once you've had that consultation generally you'll have a pretty good sense and you'll feel like you are understood and you'll feel comfortable or you won't. And, and letting that sort of be the guide as opposed to a, a sort of predetermined checklist, uh, I think is usually what's going to be most important. And I know from talking with you and other therapists, even for myself in the future, if a client were to terminate the treatment or they think that we're not the right fit, we don't take offense to it. The only time we would feel bad is if they thought that our treatment was unhelpful. Well, not even then, but we made them feel even worse. That's the only time I would say is when we might feel really bad about the situation, but everything else, it's fair game. It's about you. It's not about us. It's Mm -hmm. about what works for you and what you need to do to find that support or to feel supported. And having said that, I have absolutely said things or encouraged clients about something that, that didn't sit well with them. And so if somebody's going through a course of treatment, there's going to be things that happen with a therapist most likely that do bother them. And the most important thing is to communicate that. And maybe, maybe it's a misunderstanding. Um, maybe it's something that can be resolved, or maybe it's just a difference of perspective. And maybe, maybe that, means that it does make sense to terminate the relationship. But um, any sort of tension or conflict there is actually some, often some of the most absolutely fertile grounds to uh, explore further and to learn a lot more about, about oneself. Exactly. And I like that we were able to debunk some of the misconceptions about therapy today. A really common question that I get asked is, how can people talk to their friends or their loved ones about going to see a therapist? 
because they don't want to come off judgmental, especially with the stigma around therapy. They don't want people to think, oh, um, my friend sees me as someone who's judging them or shaming them, and they think I might have a problem. How can people mm-hmm. talk to others about potentially seeking out therapy? Yeah, so telling somebody they have a problem and they need to talk to somebody usually isn't the best <laughs> route. It's a challenge um, because it is still stigmatized. And the best way to, to destigmatize it and the best way to help somebody else, in my opinion, is through modeling. If I saw that you were struggling with something, or I, I suspected you were struggling with something. I might tell you about my experience working with the therapist and how that has helped me. If that's not applicable, if I haven't worked with a therapist, um, or maybe I just really don't want to share that, maybe I can talk about anonymously and respect their confidentiality, of course, um, and not as a therapist, but if I, if I were your friend and not a therapist, um, you know, my, my friend was talking to this person about X, Y, and Z and, and found that they were feeling much better, you know, that sort of thing and sort of uh, really, really trying to normalize it uh, and being mindful of, of not coming across as accusatory is going to be, in most cases, the most helpful. And then whenever we can sort of model something ourselves, show somebody the changes that we're making in our lives, that's going to be the most impactful way. I like how you bring up normalizing it and not accusing someone because those are really important things to keep in mind. And a friend recently asked me this question about how can they tell someone to potentially seek out therapy? And shamelessly, I said, well, you can tell though that you have a friend who is uh, trying to become a therapist and has a podcast about mental health. But more importantly, it's, <laughs> it's saying like, you know, I've been learning a bit more about mental health and about therapy. And I've learned a lot of new things about how it can help others. Maybe it's something that we could look into together, or maybe something you could consider going into. And my final question for you today is, what is the future of therapy and what direction is therapy going in? It seems from my perspective that they're sort of going in two two directions. Therapy is really moving toward a very measured, very evidence-based, very uh, protocol-based approach where we can, uh, as a therapist, sort of with increased accuracy, be able to speak with the client and say, well, with issue X, we can say that treatment Y is going to most likely produce the best outcome. And then on the other hand, I also see it moving into this very sort of holistic, intuitive, um, some people could say it's sort of spiritual direction, where we're, we're really trying to be present with people. And it's, it's really, it's, it's drawing a lot more from sort of an, an Eastern medicine versus a, a Western medicine approach. And I really think and am hopeful that we can really lean on the best of both of those because I think both of those approach, I know that both of those approaches are limited and that both of those approaches just have a, a wealth of wonderful, um, treatment options and, and help. And so I don't know the answer, but my hope is that we're going to see more of a marrying of those two things. And, and we already have. Uh, an example would be something like the relatively recent 
widespread proliferation and acceptance of mindfulness, which is something that was, you know, obviously has been around for, for millennia, um, but is a relatively new introduction into North America that has slowly been uh, integrated within the, the more standard counseling or psychotherapy model. So I'm hopeful that we'll see more of that. Thanks for sharing that bit. And when I think about your response just now, it prompted me with one more question. Especially wait, wait. about. Well, hold, on, hold on. Before your last question, I want to ask the same question to you. What do you see as the future of therapy? For me, when I think about the future of therapy, I agree with what you said about there's more evidence-based approaches out there because we want to look at what's effective for people, what's going to work for them, what's best practices. And I also recognize that there's going to be a lot of support needed for the trauma of COVID, for the increase of social media usage, and even with all the younger people who are going to have a lot of these mental health challenges because of the pandemic and because of their loss of social connection from being at home. So it'll be interesting to see how in the next five or 10 years, we're going to support people as therapists through increased anxiety and depression. Mm -hmm. And it leads me to ask you as someone who saw clients in person and now virtually through video, do you think that you've lost therapeutic value by seeing people over video? I think that we become limited. I wouldn't say that we lose value necessarily, but we, we become limited. And so I'll use an extreme example. Some forms of therapy are very body oriented and will literally include some touching. Obviously, that's not something that can be done very well uh, or, or at all over video. I'm sure there's going to be some somatic counselor who, who has some way to sort of work around that, but it certainly makes things more limited. And by I touching, don't... do you mean like a hand on the arm, a little side <laughs> hug? Let's uh, specify that a little <laughs> bit. <laughs> yeah. So with somatic work in general, somatic just means body work. And so um, usually the touching will be um, actually the client touching themselves, not usually the therapist performing. Thanks for clarifying. Like um, but any, any of the, the body focused therapies, uh, as an example, are obviously going to be very challenging. And, and for me, I would say not something that I would be able or willing to try to do virtually. A lot of the other types of evidence-based practices surrounding effective problem solving and, and certain types of exploration I think absolutely can be, and, and evidence has shown it will be effective virtually. Again, though, um, for one final time, I'm gonna <laughs> say it comes down to the individual. Some people, some clients are able and happy and prefer to connect from their own bedroom, their own living room where they're comfortable um, and they can connect via video. Other clients want to see somebody in person. They long for that face-to-face -face physical connection. And so again, no right or wrong way. Um, it's about finding what works for you. So virtual therapy absolutely can work. It doesn't work for everybody, but there's a lot of evidence that does support it. And to summarize everything we've talked about today, it's just like you said, everyone is so different 
in terms of the challenges they're facing, their experiences, their environment. So that means that their support is going to look really different too, depending on what they might need and what their goals are. But if anyone is considering or contemplating about seeking out therapy, the worst is you stop after one session because it's not for you. But it's a way for you to try something different and for you to tap into a new perspective or insight. Thank you so much, Cam, for joining me on today's episode about what is therapy and is it for me? I'm so honored to be here. Thank you so much. (laughs) It's been uh, an absolute blast. And for any listeners who are visual learners or would like some more resources, I wrote a blog post on this topic and I invite you to read it on Shervin.ca and to follow my Twitter at HelloShervin for updates. I hope everyone has a good rest of the day. Bye.